Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by Julie Henningsen. Julie Henningsen is going to be leading the story for us today. How are you doing today, Julie? Great, Casey. I'm excited to share the story that I have with you. We're going to the top of Mount Everest today. Burr. Yeah, it's cold and there's not a lot of oxygen up there. We're not just going to try and get to the summit. We are going to get to the summit. The question is, are we going to make our way back down? That's the hard part. That is always the hard part. I think that's interesting just because everything else in life, it seems like the downhill is easier than the uphill. Everything but climbing. So true. And that's how people get into trouble, getting into situations like this, as we're going to discover as we travel back in time to 2006 on Mount Everest. That was actually quite a controversial year at the time because it was when volume of climbers was really starting to get higher and higher. And there were a lot of deaths on the mountain that season. What do you think led to that sudden increase in numbers of climbers? Like, what was it, do you think that? Well, one of the particulars of the climbing season of 2006 is that they had a really long, unusually long weather span where it, mm. the, the mountain was accessible. Um, I mean, I certainly have to plan a climb like that long before you know what the weather's going to be doing. But usually there's only about a two week window every year that allows access to climbing. But th- this particular season, the window was a lot longer, which just allowed for more climbers, more summit attempts, more traffic on the mountain or more traffic and increased risk for something bad to happen exactly more traffic more traffic jams and more peril so this particular story is fairly well known i'm guessing that some of our listeners may already be familiar with the tale of lincoln hall he's an australian mountaineer who has some major ascents under his belt by the time he got to Mount Everest in 2006. He did a first ascent of a mountain called Mount Minto in Antarctica in 1988. And he'd climbed Makalu and Annapurna and a mountain called Dunagiri in the years leading up to his Everest attempt. So he had a lot of experience. He was an experienced mountaineer, 30 years actually under his belt. He'd summited many peaks. 
but he had never summited Mount Everest at this point in his career. And he was probably thinking, well, I might as well put that one last nail in the coffin. (laughs) (laughs) He might have been thinking that metaphorically, but he came a little bit closer to that than I think he bargained for. Yes, he was particularly thinking that because 22 years earlier, he had been very close to the summit, actually, on Mount Everest. At that time, he was climbing with a partner by the name of Greg Mortimer, and they were on a route on the north face of Everest trying to find a new route without fixed ropes, without oxygen. So a, a pretty you know, challenging feat. And on summit day, he'd made it that far, but he really was not feeling well. And he did not have a good feeling about going farther to the summit. He was worried about frostbite. So he made the very difficult decision to turn around before he made it to the summit. His partner, Greg Mortimer, did summit that day. And um, Lincoln Hall remembered that as kind of a survival decision for himself. He looked back on it, believing that it was the right one, but He'd had 22 years to think about this after that first attempt on Everest. So for him, I'm sure it felt like the fish that got away, so to speak. It was just niggling him that whole time. How do you like that word, niggling? Oh, it was niggling. Niggling in a major way. Yep. I love it. Okay. So in 2006, he was invited to join an expedition, again, on the north side of Everest, and a pretty risky route as well. Everest is 29,000 feet high, the highest, obviously, elevation of a mountain in the world. And on the summit, at that elevation, there's about 30% of the air's oxygen than what's in comparison to what's available at sea level. So the, the altitude and the lack of oxygen is really what makes Everest technically difficult. It's not that the climbing is so dangerous, although it is, I'm not being cavalier about that, but the altitude is what really makes it challenging. And anything above 22,000 feet in terms of levels of oxygen in the environment would be considered the death zone, not compatible with life for a prolonged period of time. Another factor possibly working against Lincoln Hall at this point in his life is that the statistic climbers over the age of 50 are at least twice likely to die on Everest. And Lincoln Hall had just turned 50 that year. So he was in the second half of life and apparently that doesn't work in your favor. You're not necessarily, you may be wiser, but you're not necessarily at lower risk in this environment. Well, also like cardiovascularly, it seems like probably a lot of people in that age range are at higher risk from that standpoint. I bet there's a lot of other things that play into it as well. Just fitness or endurance. Yeah, exactly. Fitness, endurance, speed um, of getting in and out of that death zone and all kinds of other things. I kind of wonder as people start getting, you know, like our life expectancy keeps creeping up if that number will also tip in that direction or if it will just be like this is the t- this is the time this is the tipping point yeah it could be but actually i think our life expectancy for the first time in history is creeping down due to metabolic disease so maybe that right. number will start to creep down it could but for people that are super physically fit and active you know my dad is 70 and he just told me the other day i just ran 11 miles this morning so i'm just saying like There are definitely people that push the envelope even later in life. So that's all. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I love those stories. I just read one about a woman in the Boston marathon. I can't remember her age, but it's impressively old. And it was something like her 44th annual run. That is really cool. It gives me a little bit of hope. That's going to be you, Casey. It's not going to be me. (laughs) Never been a runner, but that's going to be you. You know, you should just be on the sidelines drinking your whiskey. You Shout know I will. Me <laughs> while I run by, be like, Woo! With, with the cowbell. My mega, yeah, my cowbell, my megaphone. <laughs> I got it. I can't wait. Me neither. Okay, so at this point in his life, Lincoln Hall is married to his wife, Barbara, back in Australia. He has two teenage sons. And he had spent about two months with his team acclimatizing to prepare for this climb on Everest. So each climber had paid about $15,000 to join this 20-person expedition, which was run by a Russian mountaineer named Alex Abramov. He was their team leader. And I had mentioned this was kind of a longer season, and there had already been nine deaths on the mountain that year, which is a, was, a, I mean, that's a lot. It was a lot then, it's a lot now. But at the time, that was the most deaths per year that Everest had ever seen. It's consistently gone up since then, and I think 2023 is is now the the year with the most deaths, but that's purely just a reflection of the increase of volume of climbers. Can you imagine going into this climb knowing that nine people that season had already perished before you even set out to climb it? It's really heartwarming and, I'm sure, uplifting psychologically. Yeah, really inviting. It really kind of <laughs> re- reels you in. Reels you um, right in. Yeah, he and his climbing um, partners, they did talk about that and think about that. He, he said it felt like it kind of like a warning. It felt like there was a lot of death. He felt surrounded by death. And, you know, to add to that, just before he uh, attempted his summit bid, there was a 10th death. And it was a, a, a member of his own team, a Russian mountaineer by the name of Igor Plyushkin, who is similar age, similar experience level, very experienced, perished on the mountain. So now we're up to 10. Wow. That's intimidating for sure. Yes, very intimidating. Not necessarily the climate, so to speak, that you want to set out on. It was sort of late in the season by the point that Lincoln Hall and his partner Thomas Weber, who was a German climber, were attempting the summit. Most of the climbers that season had kind of already made their way up and were starting to head home. But Lincoln and Thomas and their Sherpa guides were still on the way up and progressing towards the higher camps, Camp 2, Camp 3, and then the summit. So on the way up, they passed Igor's icy grave. They saw his dead body in the snow. He had died two days before they ran into him which also was, you know, quite unnerving. It's like a premonition. Yeah, a premonition. And they, you know, had spent time with him, so it was particularly worrisome. Their three Sherpa companions who they were with at this point were experienced and actually very used to encountering remains on the mountain. There is a Buddhist belief that consciousness leaves the body over a three-day period after death. So they don't like to move any remains from where they died for that time period. And of course, nobody's going to hang out on Everest for three days and wait. So most victims of the mountain just end up laying where they fall and kind of being preserved indefinitely in this icy, visible 
uh, grave. You know, it's really interesting that I just remembered is that I read an article about how there was some speculation that neurological activity in the brain continues post-death. Have you ever heard of this? No, I don't think so. Is this like particularly in mountaineering or in general? No, just in general. It could have to do with that phenomenon when you, when people get get guillotined, their head rolls off, and then they can talk and um, like blink their eyes for a while. Chicken with his head cut off. <laughs> I don't think it's quite like that. So there was a new study that confirmed two previous studies that gamma waves are going up after the heart stops. So anyway. So that's cool because gamma waves are what, if you're a really experienced meditator, like if you hook up a EEG, a really long time Buddhist monk that meditates hours every day, gamma waves are predominant, which is hard. I mean, it's hard to achieve that level of meditation. And so the gamma waves just associated with intense calm and introspection. That is really interesting. It's like they had it figured out all along and now we're scientifically finding out that maybe there's something actually going on physiologically. Yes. Yeah. Something a little bit more mysterious. I just thought it was interesting that they already believed that before it was proven that maybe there's something to it. Yeah, there probably is. Okay. So Lincoln is feeling kind of thrown after he encounters Igor's body on the mountain. He's feeling a little off balance, as you would. So he had a satellite phone. He called his wife, and she knew that he'd always carried this disappointment of not achieving his dream on Everest for the first time 22 years ago. So she was kind of on the edge of her seat, hoping for the best, but also worried, as any spouse would be. He didn't reach her when he called her, so he left her a message just describing that he was feeling well, the weather was good. It was kind of an all systems go mentality to leave that night at midnight for their summit bid. So on May 24th, 2006 at midnight, he finds himself at 27,000 feet, kind of the point of no return, very near the summit. This is after four days of just solid climbing. And at that elevation, with the limited amount of oxygen availability, your survival just depends on speed. It's a get-in, get-out operation. Only about 3,000 kilometers vertical elevation to go up, spend a minute or two on the summit, 15 or 20, take a few pictures, and then right back down. The key now is really speed. They leave by headlamp in the middle of the night at midnight to try and maximize daylight. And as they're making the final push, suddenly he encounters another victim of the mountain. This time it's the body of British climber David Sharp, who had died 10 days earlier on the mountain. He's frozen solid, very near the summit. And this is a kind of a high profile, interesting peek into the world of Everest mountaineering. This was reported about a lot in the media and This is, you know, in 2006, we're starting to hear stories of what the climbing culture is like on a busy mountain like this. And and David Sharp was sort of the the poster boy for those stories. He was climbing Everest in sort of with a non-traditional approach. He did not have a Sherpa guide. He had no contact with other expeditions. He had no radio. He was just on his own. And he started to succumb to altitude illness on his way up and, and couldn't go any farther. He crawled into a shallow cave and as many as 40 cl- other climbers walked past him as he lay dying on their way up the mountain. Most of those climbers didn't see him or maybe assumed he was resting or some assumed he was already dead. 
but nonetheless, they all passed him by. And then the next morning, many climbers passed him on their descent. He was still alive and now quite visible in daylight. And most of the returning climbers noticed him, saw him and passed him. So media really reacted to this. Of course, it was reported on a lot and pointed out as kind of this perceived heartless culture. And even Sir Edmund Hillary, who was one of the first people to summit Mount Everest back in the day, commented that the ethics of mountaineering had been corrupted, that this type of thing was happening. Well, I mean, let's remove ourselves from Mount Everest for a moment and realize that people don't stop when there are motor vehicle accidents. People don't assist other individuals who are sick or injured on the sidewalk. So it's like, hey, maybe before we pass judgment on whatever is going on Mount Everest, we should think about how we're behaving down here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just putting it out there, you know, like, okay, you're pointing a finger, but would you stop and help someone? I'm just saying. That's such a good point. I think the ethics maybe have been corrupted in many realms outside of mountaineering in the culture today in comparison to maybe when Sir Edmund Hillary summited. Right. And also the number of people that are going up there is astronomically higher than it used to be. So I'm sure these incidents are just more and more common. Yeah, more and more common. And I think if you talked to, uh, you know, high altitude mountaineers who are more familiar with the environment and the train and the limitations and the culture of what it's like to be in that situation, it's such a fine line between life and death to begin with in this environment. So many folks would say that it wouldn't have been physically possible to rescue David Sharp. He couldn't walk. Um, You know, at that altitude, your muscles don't work. You can't lift a nearly dead body and carry him. So I think a lot of people that might've been in that experience firsthand would have suggested that there was no chance of bringing him down, that it really wasn't an option. There's a lot of limitations. Yeah, a lot of limitations. So maybe at that point, the choice is just sitting with somebody as they die and holding their hand or um, summiting because you wouldn't have enough oxygen to do both. So Lincoln and his group passed David Sharp. They reached the second step, which is considered by some to be the biggest obstacle on the climb, the route that they were on, a a 150-foot vertical rock wall. They were making pretty good progress. So nine hours into their day, they did reach the summit. They could see it in the distance. They saw prayer flags on the peak and they knew they would make it. They just had one little last steep section to go before the summit. And then they're standing on the tippy top of Mount Everest. Nobody else was there. And it was just really an incredible moment for Lincoln and the rest of his group. But he was cognizant of the fact that he really was only halfway there. So back at base camp, he had a lot of old friends and climbing partners that heard that they made it. Their leader, Alex Abramoff, got on the radio and directed them to start their descent and just make their way back down. They called his wife, they let her know that he'd made it to the summit, but she later commented that although she appreciated the call, that wasn't the call she she wanted. She wanted to hear when he made it back down. That was really the moment she was gonna be able to breathe more easily. Yeah, can you imagine waiting for that news all day long? Yeah, I think that would be challenging to kind of just sit and twiddle your thumbs to, to hear especially knowing the risks involved and knowing that he'd been in this situation before. So after about 20 minutes on the summit, they began their descent and uh, 150 feet below them was Thomas Weber still ascending. So they had started out together, but Lincoln Hall made it to the summit before Thomas. 
Thomas Weber had decided to turn back. He was losing his balance. His cognition was declining and he was showing signs of severe altitude illness. And then suddenly, as Lincoln Hall was descending, he kind of out of nowhere started to feel just incredibly exhausted. He described it as letting his mental guard down, feeling really fatigued, lethargic, and recognized that he was showing the signs of HACE, high-altitude cerebral edema, which is a not super well understood severe altitude uh, illness that is related to low pressure in the atmosphere causing fluid to leak into the brain, which then causes pressure within the cranium, swelling within the cranium. Descent is the only cure for this. It's hallmarked by lethargy, imbalance, confusion, hallucinations can occur. And it did, in this case, come on quite quickly. So meanwhile, Thomas Weber and his guide, 150 feet below, radioed that Thomas had suddenly died. This was unexpected because he had turned back and they thought he was headed in the right direction. But apparently he sat down in the snow and he looked at his guide and said, I am dying. And then he just lay down and, and quickly died. Like a strange premonition came over him. So things got really scary really quickly. And they were still very high up on the mountain. And when their leader, Alex Abramoff, back at base camp, realized that Lincoln was also in trouble, he told Thomas Weber's Sherpa to go back up to try and help Lincoln if he could. So Thomas's Sherpa, Pemba, started to climb back up to where Lincoln and the other two Sherpas were trying to descend. The Sherpas were also struggling, as anyone would. And Lincoln Hall, in retrospect, commented about how he was being very uncooperative, disoriented, combative, irritable, which are all hallmarks of haste. It's not anything other than malfunction of the brain that can just cause somebody to have really irrational, uncooperative behavior, as can occur in any head injury. So how long do you have to descend before you have life-ending consequences of haste, do you know? I think it's pretty variable. It can come on quite quickly. In fact, I think it's known to come on more quickly than some of the other altitude illnesses like HAPE or AMS. So it can hit fast and probably kill you fast as well. But the good news is you can relieve some of these symptoms with a descent as small as a thousand feet of elevation. You know, just going down a short distance can make a difference. So recognizing it and turning it around or turning around and heading downward, it doesn't take much for some of that to improve. In his state of what they call altitude craziness, the Sherpas tried to lift and carry him to safety, which was impossible with his kind of uncooperative nature. They just weren't making any headway. He had friends in base camp who would get on the radio and try to inspire him to keep moving and keep going and remind him where he was and remind him of his family. And they're all working together to try and inspire him downward. But by this point, Lincoln Hall was really hallucinating and out of it and didn't even really know where he was. The radio urging from his climbing partners, particularly a friend by the name of Mike Dillon, was so persistent that at one point it did get through to him and he realized where he was. He had a moment of lucidity and he was able to take some instructions to try and repel down this second step, this 150-foot vertical wall, which was crazy because that's a one, you have to do that on your own. Nobody can repel you or help you with that. So it's a sink or swim operation. And in the state that he was in, everyone just watched 
helplessly, not knowing if he was going to be able to manage that physical task of repelling. Terrible suspense right there. Yeah, literally suspended suspense. <laughs> the worst kind. The worst kind. So they called his wife again and told her that he was still near the summit, which was very worrisome to her because this had, was six or seven hours after they had summited and she figured that he would be well downward at this point. As he's repelling, he's out of control, just lowering himself down this rope. And he, he swung across, pendulumed over to one side with his crampons on. He saw himself headed towards Pemba, this Sherpa guide, and he put his foot out to break, brace his fall or brace his pendulum swing, forgetting that he had crampons on his boots. And he cut the crampons cut right into Pemba's thigh. It wounded his leg quite badly. That's awful. And then he has to continue downward with that leg injury and an open wound. Yes, Pemba had to deal with that in the moment and keep going. He refused to give up on Lincoln. You know, at this point, people will kind of look back on the story and say, well, they should have left him. But the Sherpa guides don't think like that. They're, they were very focused, including Pemba, on getting him down. He had four Sherpas helping him at this point, but eventually they had to stop. They weren't making headway. They were dragging him as far as they could, but they were still at 28,000 feet elevation, still in the death zone. They realized there was really nothing else they could do. They'd had a 19 hour day so far. They'd been at it for 19 hours. They'd run out of oxygen by this point and they were all really quite close to death. So of course, Lincoln's starting to get frostbite. His time has really run out and the decision is made from base camp to leave him. The Sherpas are directed to head down by Alex Abramoff, the expedition leader. But of course they didn't. They stayed with him for an additional two hours trying to revive him, trying to do everything they could but eventually, after that length of time, they couldn't perceive any respirations. They couldn't find a pulse. He didn't respond to a poke in the eye. So they felt pretty confident that he was indeed dead. Is that how you're going to test to see if I'm still alive? If we're in this kind of situation, just poke me in the eyeball. <laughs> Forget the carotid artery. I'm just going to poke you in the eyeball. Yeah, when you're in your 90s running the Boston Marathon and you collapse, don't worry. <laughs> I will come over and poke you in the eyeball to keep you going. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> that's, that's how good of a friend I am. <laughs> so at 5.20 p.m., remember they left at midnight, so now we're at 5.20 p.m., the Sherpas left him. They left him alone with no water, no shelter, no oxygen. They took a lot of his gear Nobody has ever been left for dead this high in elevation and survived. His wife reported that at one point in that time frame, she suddenly got this feeling of his arms around her back at home, which felt very troubling, as though he was there with her. And then the phone rang, and she reported that she knew instantly what the phone call was going to tell her. So she told their teenage sons that their dad had passed away about 20 minutes ago, and they three just kind of sat in a huddle, hugging and crying and, and really didn't know what to do. The worst uh, fear had come true. That is so heart-wrenching. I cannot even imagine having to do that. Yeah, and having to face that reality. I'm sure at that point there was not the thought in any of their minds that maybe, you know, this is not true. Like they would, I'm guessing, think like they wouldn't tell us this unless it was true. So yeah, just devastating. 
And the news spread around the world, the climbing community, um, you know, that he was a fairly well-known climber, partners, friends, family, memorial plans were already being discussed. And it was a pretty devastating, shocking news in the wake of a lot of other tragedy that had already occurred that year on the mountain. But then the weather changed. The clouds rolled in, which kind of took the edge off the cold and enveloped him. It prevented the temperature from dropping extremely low. And suddenly in the night, Lincoln just wakes up. He's laying there on the mountain, seemingly dead. He woke up and he decided he wasn't gonna die. His mind was ready to fight back. The hallucinations were still there. They started up again. Um, he felt like he was wearing what he described as a gray cloak of death. And he knew in his heart that he had to accept this cold and pull that cloak off and keep going. He said he felt like a pilgrim, knowing that he only had one choice. He started to believe he wasn't gonna die despite the odds and he was willing to fight for life. He described using everything he had learned over 30 years of Buddhist meditation and yogic breathing techniques, and of course, mountaineering, to fight. So he maintains his consciousness as the sun comes up, which kind of starts to warm him a little bit. And after 30 hours in this death zone, he should, by all definitions, by all metrics, be dead. And he's awake and conscious. So there he is on his own near the summit, and his luck kind of continues at that point. There was a team of four climbers, Daniel Mazur of the U US, Andrew Brash of Canada, Miles Osborne of the UK, and Jang Bu Sherpa of Nepal heading for the summit. And this climbing team of four commented afterwards that they had realized moments before seeing Lincoln Hall that nothing was gonna stop them from reaching the summit. They were all but there, which was just an incredible feeling. And then in the next moment, they, you know, turned around the proverbial corner and there is Lincoln Hall. He said, I bet you're surprised to see me here. You know what that just, I just had a flicker of a, something that seems similar, not nearly to this degree, but it's like when all of your kids are in bed and you think, that you're free for the night and then someone comes back downstairs you're like yes i'm almost there nope never mind that's the mom's mount everest getting every <laughs> kid tucked into bed yeah. and you got to get up the next day and do it all again there's always one more thing <laughs> always always so uh this team of four they come across lincoln hall and they just knew they had a very difficult choice to make when they encountered him, he was half undressed. He had taken off um, the kind of the jacket and clothing over his torso, which he commented afterwards might have been a reflection of this cloak of death hallucination he was having. Maybe he was trying to take off his cloak of death or another possible explanation is um, he was in the final throes of hypothermia and doing this phenomenon called paradoxical undressing that we see with hypothermia when death is eminent and blood suddenly returns to the extremities, it can produce a sensation of a hot rush. So often, just before death, hypothermia victims will disrobe, take all their clothes off or take their mittens off or their jacket off. So do these climbers assist him in getting his clothing back on? Because it doesn't seem like he would last long without any clothing on. Yeah, they got him all buttoned back up. They secured him to a rope. He was talking about how he thought he was on a boat. Lincoln Hall thought he was on a boat and he kept saying he wanted to get off the boat. And to him, getting off the boat was going over this 
edge of a 10,000 foot drop from where they were. So they were really working hard to try and keep him on the boat, so to speak. And they radioed back to base camp that they'd found him and that he was conscious and he was alive. And of course, when that news reached camp, Abramoff dispatched a a rescue team of, of 12 Sherpa guides from the base camp to head back up the mountain. But this team that was on their ascent, they stayed with Lincoln for four hours and they'd run out of oxygen. They knew by making that decision that they would not be able to make it to the summit. It, was, it would be too late to continue in the uphill direction. One of the climbers, Miles Osborne, talked about how he had scrimped and saved for years $25,000 to pay for this expedition. And he knew this was a one-time thing. He was never going to be back there in his lifetime. And he realized that he wasn't going to make it to the summit. He said for about 24 hours, he was so pissed off that his summit bid was was ruined. But then he did get the perspective that he absolutely did the right thing. He wouldn't want to summit Mount Everest being the person that left somebody that he could have helped. Yeah. And well, he had the right to be angry, but... You know, it's pretty amazing that he was able to help in this situation where he got to spend his money to go rescue someone from the top of Mount Everest as opposed to summiting it. Yeah. And he got kind of famous for it because we're talking about him right now, 13 years later. <laughs> or no, we're talking about him. <laughs> uh, what, what is it? We're like um, 17 years later. Yeah. So yeah, good work, Miles. He did the right thing. And, and Miles Osborne and Lincoln Hall, after the fact, after all of this went down, they ended up becoming friends and really had a lot of respect for each other. So it, it did end well for both of them. Well, and we all need to sleep at night. So there's that too. Exactly. Yeah. And Miles said he didn't want to go back home and have to tell all of his friends that he walked by this guy when he could have helped, but chose not to. That's not what anybody wants as their legacy. That's when all your friends ghost you. Yeah, exactly. They know, they see your true colors. So they can't get a hold of Lincoln Hall's family. They're having radio issues. So they're not able to let them know this new development. Several hours go by and the news is actually starting to spread at this point on the internet. And Lincoln Hall's son back in Australia was surfing the internet and saw a news link that suggested his dad was still alive. They saw this and read it before they got any kind of a phone call. They didn't know what to think. They couldn't believe it. And they just were so confused. Well, especially in 2006, because news didn't travel like it does now, you know. So that would be pretty shocking to get information that would be contradicting what you had heard before. Yeah, many people were skeptical that, including his family, that this you know, wasn't a scam or a false report. But after 36 hours of fighting, Lincoln Hall arrived back at base camp with this rescue team. He had a lot of frostbite on his hands and toes, and he was able to call his wife, Barbara, himself from base camp. She said that his voice was unrecognizable, and even when she was speaking with him on the phone, she wasn't sure it was him. She still didn't believe it. And then he said to her, I hope you haven't started looking for another husband yet. And, and she said that when he, when he, she heard him say that, she knew it was him. She knew it was him and he was alive and it was all true. That's hilarious. He has a good sense of humor. Yeah. So after two months on Everest, 22 years after his first attempt, he walked out alive. And his first priority was to try and find the uh, Sherpas that had helped him near the summit. 
and he was able to find Pemba that day. And they were just so relieved and surprised that he had survived. And Lincoln was so grateful and expressed so much gratitude towards them. And they just kept saying, don't worry, don't worry, it's okay. So they had their moment of beauty. It's pretty reminiscent of Beck Weathers, where he was just left for dead and miraculously still survived. What were Lincoln's injuries or how much frostbite did he have? Was it pretty significant? Yeah, it sounds like it was significant on his hands and toes. I don't know how much, how many fingers he lost or how much of his hands, but sounds like, yeah, he didn't come out with all of his parts intact um, on the hands and feet. And his survival, just kind of like Beck Weathers, as you said, it just eludes any explanation by medical science. There's something, you know, a little bit more mysterious and hard to put your finger on going on with this story. Also, it kind of makes you wonder what we're all capable of if you believe it, you know, like so much of what we achieve is based upon our belief and not so much the circumstances. Yeah, I think that's one of the themes in a lot of these survival stories that we tell is the idea that these survivors often survive because they decided that they were going to, that they weren't going to give up and they just had that mental fortitude and mindset to keep moving forward. Um, which is probably a a necessity to survival in these challenging situations. Yeah. It's just like, how can you apply that to everyday life and not wait until your life is on the line to make the decision to persevere, you know? Yeah. Sounds like it would require a lot of energy to apply that to everyday life. (laughs) (laughs) Just persevere when you're getting that last kid tucked into bed. Right. Persevere. If somebody said that to me in that moment when I'm super irritated, I'd probably, (laughs) I would hit them. I'm pretty sure. It's like in my gym class where we're doing a three minute plank and they're like, you have that strength in you. I know you can do it. You just want to, you just want to roll your eyes big time. Oh yeah. And, and drop out of plank. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So in the kind of a sad, poignant twist to this story, Lincoln Hall actually died six years later in his late 50s, so at a pretty young age, of mesothelioma, of all things. So he survived this nightmare of a climb on Everest and had six good years with his wife and sons before he succumbed to this random chronic lung disease. That's crazy. Especially he was from Australia, right? But I guess there's asbestos everywhere. I always just think about Libby, Montana, but I realized that it must be in other places in the world. And I'm sure it was used for insulation (laughs) and all of those things in other places in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Montanans automatically think of Libby, Montana when they hear the words mesothelioma, as do I. Yeah, that's definitely the cause that comes to mind for me. So I'm not sure what caused his, but yeah. Not something you hear of every day. I'm so glad that he was able to make it down and hopefully finish raising his kids, you know, because those last six years were probably really important for them and for him too, of course, but that would be the worst part. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Knowing that his sons were teenagers, theoretically, six years later, they were young adults. So a beautiful time period to be able to have with his family. So that year, as I said, most deaths ever up to that point on Everest, 10 deaths. But in 2014, 16 climbers died. And then just this year, 2023, the death toll on Everest was 17 climbers. Five of those climbers are missing, but presumed dead on Everest. So those numbers keep going up as 
the traffic keeps going up on that mountain. How many people climbed it this year? Do you have that stat? Um, I do. It looks like in 2023, an estimated 600 people summited uh, Everest, including 350 Sherpas supporting 250 clients. So how many people attempted to summit is probably well beyond that number. But interesting facts about deaths on Everest, the majority of them are caused by um, avalanche, actually. Falls are a close second, frostbite, and exposure, hypothermia is a cause of death, and actually acute mountain sickness like HAPE and, and HACE, um, which is what Lincoln Hall was suffering from, only accounts for about 10% of deaths on Everest. Those are uh, pretty avoidable problems if you take the time to acclimatize and bring plenty of oxygen. And I mean, not completely avoidable, but proper planning can do a lot to prevent altitude illness. The seven Ps, proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance. uh, (laughs) Words to live by right there. (laughs) Words to live by, (laughs) especially when you're planning to climb Everest. Another fact about deaths on Everest, the majority of deaths are on descent. Between 80 and 90% of Everest deaths are on descent and much smaller number of deaths associated with us, which makes sense. It's also easier to go up than it is to come down. Just mechanically, I think. Yeah, I agree. It is for me anyway. Okay, so that's it, Casey. The story of Lincoln Hall. One of the greatest survival stories, I would say, that I've encountered in this podcast you and I have put together. Yes, that is a super impressive story. Unbelievable, really. So before we wrap up, we'd like to ask for your support in spreading the word about the Crux True Survival Stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to visit our Instagram page at the Crux Podcast. We encourage you to share our latest post on your stories and help us reach more fellow survival enthusiasts and storytellers. If you haven't already, please consider leaving a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helping us continue to bring you compelling stories of survival. If you have any survival stories you'd like to share with us or topics you'd like to explore, feel free to write us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for your support. Yes. Thank you for your support. Have an awesome week. Julie, thanks for that story. That was great. Yeah. Anytime. I'll see you next week. (laughs) Sounds good.